And when we work on the same team together, it's Billy, Willie, and Prilly. Hello and welcome to JudgeCast. This is episode number 60. With me, as always, my two... Indomitable. Indomitable co-hosts. First, we have Jess Dunks. Hi, everybody. This is Jess. Hey, Jess. We also have Brian Prilliman. Hello! And this episode, we have another very special guest. He's no Sheldon Minery, but he <laughs> shares my name tag woes. It's Matt Williams. Hello! Hello, Matt. Who are you? Where are you from? Where you been? Uh, I'm uh, a level two from Tampa, Florida. Um, I just got off of doing uh, GP Charlotte, so a uh, little bit of the recovery process. Yeah. So let's uh, dive right into that, huh? Yeah. So, so since we last recorded, there have been several GPs. One of them in Canada, which, yeah. well, I mean, yeah, PTQ. <laughs> yeah, there was a PTQ there's in a Canada. PTQ, though. Wait, there's, there's a Canada. There, <laughs> yes, and <laughs> both and both members of that other judge cast were over there. So, if you want to listen to what happened at that PTQ, you can talk to those guys or listen to their show. Um, but there have been two record-breaking uh, GPs since we last recorded. So before, the previous record was held by GP Madrid from, like, 2010. But since then, we've had two GPs, uh, GP uh, Yokohama and GP Charlotte, that have just crushed uh, the records. So GP, uh, GP Yokohama had 2,297 participants. Not bad. No. <laughs> and GP Charlotte had... 2,674 is uh, the official numbers uh, from Jared. Uh, I think 2,697 was announced at one point, but there were some duplicate entries. So the number got adjusted down a little bit. Yeah. Oh, oh no. (laughs) You know, we lost 20... So I heard, um, I heard some uh, judges talking about making T-shirts that say "I survived GP Charlotte." Yeah. Uh, there has been some some talk about that, or like a pin, or something, or right. something along those lines. So yeah, this is it was the largest GP ever, huh? Yes, and today, yes. I think on on Friday, you know, there was uh, it was the largest judge conference ever. Either we had two hundred people at the judge wow, conference. I didn't think about that. Yeah, it was it was massive. I mean, when it was absolutely insane we had, so we had we had 200 people at the judge conference we had three separate stations running so there, there yeah, were it was... uh 12 judge conferences or 12 judge uh seminars and then there was two sessions so a total of 24 seminars going on across the day it was just absolutely amazing dealing with the pa system because they were firing off so many side events so many grinders uh yeah, having you, to have yeah if going, you Matt. Uh, if you watch the video for the Judge Jeopardy, you can hear it get interrupted for the number of drafts and stuff that were going on. You can also hear a special guest question from the lovely host of JudgeCast. You can. Why do I plug our show on our show? I don't think that's necessary. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. Give, give, let's do an in-show advertisement to the show yeah. you're already listening to. In case you're not how, for- that's how we do it's, it's inefficient. The uh, the technical difficulties that occurred towards the end, that was uh, my fault. I got drafted like three seconds before it was supposed to start. And it was like, here, push this button when I nod at you. 
and I was like, all right. And what happened was on the on the computer program, if you left the uh, if you left the mouse idle for too long, it disappeared, oh. and then you had to like shake the mouse in order to get the little arrow to appear again, but they didn't actually give us a mouse. It was just a touchpad. And it was one of those touchpads that if you like double tap it, it clicks. So I was constantly having to like, you know, just run my finger across the mouse pad. And if you double clicked when you weren't supposed to, it shut the whole thing down. So this yeah. seems like an amazing program, whatever it was. <laughs> it seems, it seems like an amazing conversation. <laughs> Oh. Listeners are going to be real excited about this one. Hey, so why are we even talking about GP Charlotte? So two of the people on this podcast right now, we're at GP Charlotte, and that's you, Brian, and also Matt Williams, who I'm going to call Billy Willie throughout the podcast. Billy Willie, do you want to explain why? My full name is William Matthew Williams, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, the Florida community likes to make nicknames and random things. And so one, uh, Ben McDole, <laughs> the one of the level threes, bestowed the name upon me, and it's kind of lasted a while and just decided to embrace it instead of trying to run from got, it. So uh, Billy Willie works. I got DJ Spooky Molder from them, so I think I'm winning. <laughs> it's a good name. <laughs> it is a good name. Yeah, so let's uh, let's talk about the main event just very briefly because this is a gigantic GP. Like, what, what happened? Like, surely they weren't staffed for that many judges, for that many players. No, there so was... We- what was it, Brian? Like seventeen? It was for like seventeen, eighteen. Really? We we had uh, I think it was approx- approximately seventy three to seventy five judges on staff. The expected attendance was <laughs> about eighteen hundred, maybe two thousand. You know, on Friday night it was like, hey, we're seated for two thousand, and it was, and I think before we left on Friday night, it was we've almost broke two thousand pre regis which is unheard yeah. of. Absolutely. That's what I, I that's what I had heard on Friday night. Like they, we were they, running they were, Friday night magic. I heard 2000. Yeah, they were accepting registration online still as well. Right. And so we were we were kind of like, well, you know, if people can register online, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, that's why the numbers higher. The people who would normally be lined up in the morning, they're just registering online, you know, through the website, sure no problem. Okay. But then another Almost 700 people showed up the morning of. <laughs> so a small GP showed up just just that GP morning. Charleston showed up <laughs> uh, more than GP Charleston showed up. Um, so Let's uh, something real uh, quick here that I learned this a little bit later from talking to uh, Georgia judges that were there. But how many grinders did you guys fire on Friday before the GP? Uh, I have that somewhere. Yeah, I don't. Uh, well, it was unique in that they had, uh, if I remember correctly, they had sealed and standard grinders, right? Yes. The, that's, the I've never seen that before at a GP. That, that's been a newer trend. Okay. Right. There's there's even been a few GPs that have had something called um, it's it's a limited, but it's mixed standard. I've seen at a few GPs where you actually get like one pack from each set that's legal and standard. And then, you know, maybe, you know, if there's if there's not, you know, six sets, then they do, you know, more of whatever the current set is to make up. But that's what you get. So you'd get like a pack of insert, you know, weird one of each of the the Innistra seems interesting. It's been popular, I think, pastimes has done it. But the note I hear I have here says uh, from Jared uh, Silva says and there's an error in it, but it says 17 sealed and 10 sealed. <laughs> so one of, one of those is standard. I, so at 27. I believe it was more standard. Okay, so we had 17 standard and 10 sealed, so 27 And grinders. how many did you run at GP Charleston? Just, just like six. I heard it was two. 
<laughs> I'm just trying to show some scale here of the two GPs. I mean, that's kind of like you're comparing two extremes, though. Yes. Right. That's more fun. You are. You're like, you're like, it's fun. Yeah, like I don't understand. Well, there, there is a lot of factors. Like we actually discussed a lot of us discussed like why Charleston was one way and, and Charlotte was another. And this is all this is all just judges who don't really know kind of guessing and hypothesizing. Right. But well, Charlotte, Charlotte had a great airport. Charleston, not so much, you know, an easy, easy to uh, easily accessible. Charleston was the weekend right before Thanksgiving. Yeah, that that's probably a big factor. Um, Charlotte, not so much. Charlotte had Gold Rush. Uh, Charleston didn't. And Charlotte had just the Star City advertising powerhouse behind it. I mean, yeah. they plastered that over everything. I mean, yeah, this is kind of like Salt Lake all over again, but bigger. Like, yeah. Where they were like, oh, we expect this many players and oh, half as many again came. Yeah, I was uh, in Salt Lake as well. I mean, the, it, it was very similar. It was just bigger again. I mean, we had the same problem where in Salt Lake, the staffing was for a number and you ended up with a number and a half. And so, you know, the, there's just a lot of players and you're trying to accommodate everything. And you have like the extra challenge with the gold rush of, you know, trying to handle all those envelopes to all the players at the same time. And so normally like the sleep and special guys, you know, don't have to show up at all. And so you have to handle like, how are you going to handle those envelopes to them? You know, in, uh, in Salt Lake City and the same thing we had. To, I can't remember if it happened in Charleston or in Charlotte because I was, you know, sent off at that point. But, you know, lining people up so you can handle them the envelope. So so let's let's. Instead of talking about the main event, one of the things that we asked uh, Mr. Williams on here uh, to discuss is public events. All right. Every every GP has public events and they are extremely important to the event. I mean, people people when they play in the main, I mean, you don't come to a big event and then, you know, go O2 drop and then go home. You know, it's still a weekend. You still want to have fun. You still want to play. And well, what do you do? You go play. Probably came with friends and they're still in it. So you're going to go over and draft or play in a standard event. So so we asked Matt, since Matt was the public events lead on Saturday in the AM, the AM shift, we we wanted him on to discuss what goes into something like that. It turned in more of the all day shift because I was actually originally listed as the mid shift. Because you'd expect the public events to pick up in the middle of the day. But yeah, I was there up until I think 10 o'clock on Saturday night. So can we can we start off talking about more basic? Like how, how are public events supposed to go? What What is... So your job there was public events lead, right? Right. And it sounds like you had three shifts. There were three shifts overall for uh, public there were, events? There were two shifts. Oh, okay. um, there was... A few people who came in in the morning uh, yeah. to fire the a handful of whatever would fire in the morning. What was supposed to be a handful? Yeah, it was I'm supposed sure. to be you know a couple of drafts here there for those people who show up not planning on playing or oh. maybe the guys who have buys and feel like drafting instead. I mean whatever whatever they, their motives are. Uh, and then really transitioning to a larger uh, staff size for the middle of the day and then adding on more bodies as the day goes on and then start peeling off the people who got there earlier. And generally you have you know your standard. Uh, the winner boxes of, across all the formats, your drafts, and then each TO does their own uh, scheduled events that have you know start times. Typically, they try to start them a couple of hours after the GP is supposed to start, and then just stagger them through the day, ending in time to get out of the hall before it closes. So, yeah. when your when your day started, this is just a, a curious question because we were very late getting started on the main yes. event as we were struggling for chairs and stuff like that. Did you actually fire side events of people who were registered in the main event that just wanted something to do while they were waiting? 
I, I I don't know for sure, but I have a feeling that while we were moving chairs, uh, well, to start my day, I was supposed to come on shift at 11, uh, but I knew based on the numbers that we had heard on Friday that we were going to be a little busy. So I wanted to come in and at least be in the area in case things got started, I could help out. So I picked up some breakfast and I walked into the hall at 9.45 and realized that we were in for something special <laughs> because at this point I took a, because to walk into the venue, it was actually, you went down an escalator and there was uh, some windows where you could see in. And I actually, <laughs> I actually took a picture and could not fit all the people in line at 9.45 into the picture. And the hall was just wall to wall people. What time was the GP supposed to start? Uh, 10. Okay. And <laughs> So at 9.45, I couldn't fit everyone in, in the picture. So I went down the stairs, tried to walk into the judge area that was curtained off to take a seat to eat my breakfast sandwich so that I could jump on and help. Mm-hmm. Went behind the curtains, and there were no chairs and tables <laughs> yep. because they'd already been t- taken for the main event. <laughs> wow. So I actually stole, ate on top of a trash can. <laughs> we stole every table that was like – even if you went to the main stage where there's normally – you know, there's the row of tables right there at the front, and then – Behind that front row, there's another row of tables. Uh, we took those off the stages and set them out there. We stole half tables, like the little, the little, you know, foot and a half wide, mm-hmm. two foot wide tables. We stole those and moved them down and put two of them together to make a table. So uh, yeah, it was crazy. So I, I finished my breakfast and then I started on Operation Tables and Chairs. <laughs> And I checked in with the side event stage, and they had a couple of judges who were in position to fire uh, any drafts or winner boxes that came up at that point. Because the first scheduled event wasn't until noon, uh, which was a two-headed giant event that was supposed to fire at noon. So I was like, okay, I'm here if you need me. And I just went on helping the main event because it was a madhouse trying to find chairs and tables. It was so bad that we even used uh, some stage risers to set up for in the judge area for deckless County. <laughs> wow. Did, did the players... yeah, we had that issue. I was just say we had that issue in Grand Prix San Jose as well that we ran out of tables for deck lists. Uh, like when, we were, when everybody was giving out game losses for deck lists, there was just nowhere to go to to check someone's deck. Uh-huh. I ended up giving someone a game loss, like you said, on top of a trash can. <laughs> San Jose was another uh, another interesting event. So, did you have area or room? to like how much of your side of an area was confiscated by the main event well to kind of best describe the layout is we were up against the wall we had the side event stage which immediately in front of it had just a, basically a column of, of tables for the main event then we had a break another column of tables also reserved for the main event with most of those tables actually being the ones that we had scavenged or, and just placed there they were kind of in the way to where we actually had reduced one of the judge areas to where it was basically non-existent and added tables in its place. And then there was a third column up against the wall that had about four rows of chairs that were for the main event. And then another about eight rows of chairs that hadn't been taken by the main event yet. But we were worried that they were going to go away. To step back for a second, because you have to assume a lot of our listeners may not have even been at a GP. Sure. Uh, this was not your first time being a public events lead. Is that correct? Uh, I'd done Sunday before. I'd not done uh, day one before. Isn't isn't Sunday generally the bigger day, you think? It is. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, well, in, in a normal GP. So yeah, well, it, was, it was still bigger in Charlotte. It was just... <laughs> Saturday was still big. I'm saying his Saturday at Charlotte was probably bigger than his Sunday, wherever it was before. Uh, yes. So uh, what do what do you do as the public events manager? Uh, well, I try to first make sure I'm aware of all the scheduled events. Okay. I um, make sure I'm aware of who has been 
assigned to me for the day who's coming in at what times. Uh, so I generally know when I have relief so that I can plan breaks and making sure that people get off their feet and are still taken care of. Uh, I also find out who on the main event is my contact to steal from. This event, I was dealing with the regional coordinator for the Southeast, uh, one Justin Turner, oh, yes. who was very gracious in letting me steal people from him all day. And so it's just the overall managing of the chaos that is side events when it is busy, because you don't know when your events are always going to fire with the surges in eight mans. You don't know what any of the sizes are going to be for any of the schedule events. I've seen two-headed giants fire with 10 teams, and I've seen two-headed giant team fire with, you know, 100 plus teams. I think you just, guys had 100 plus teams for the two-headed giant event, didn't you? On on Sunday it was 100 plus. Oh, it was on Sunday. It yeah, all the Saturday, together. The Saturday one was the first event to fire, and it was a little smaller, but it was still at three o'clock on Saturday. Okay. And so it's just so the overall idea is just to make sure that it's it's not that much different than head judging. A PTQ or being, you know, head judge of uh, any, you know, mid, middle to mid to large size tournament, you're still managing people, and you're just trying to make sure that everything is going as well as it can. So the mechanics. Let's let's talk a little bit about the mechanics of running of running the eight mans. All right. So I come up to the I come up to the stage from from a judge perspective. Or, or from a player, I come up, I fill out a little sheet, you know, seven other people fill it out, it's ready to go, they announce booster, draft, whatever, number 73 is ready to go, they call my name again and again, finally I hear, okay, what happens from that point on Mr. Williams? Well, I've seen a number of the TOs have switched to, like, the keypad entry, or to get away from the sheets, because people disappear so much. But yeah, so the judge calls up, we announce the event, we hope that all eight people show up. Uh, in an ideal world, you have some meeting place that's not right in front of the stage, which was a challenge on uh, in uh, Charlotte, was because we had no room. So we actually just had to have people kind of meet to the side of the stage, which was creating cluster. But what we wanted to do is get the eight people, you know, you know, the product the ju- with the judge, get them taken out to an area in the full on the floor where we can keep track of them, get them fired on their draft, and get them playing magic. Uh, you know, letting them know how we're going to collect their results, uh, where the where the lands are so they can build their decks, you know, who their opponents are, and those kind of things, and get them going. Um, now, now, how did you guys handle or structure getting the results? <laughs> One of the things I really really like if you can do it is putting a person with the land station and all the results, and collect all the results. Uh, that way you don't have any brackets go missing. Uh, players have any questions they can ask, they know who they can ask. Um, and it just overall it allows for the process to be a little bit smoother than when you just leave the bracket out on the table. Because then you end up with a scorekeeper or TO is like, hey guys, I need to know what happened with draft number 19. And you're like, um, don't know where it went. Okay. So in this particular case, there's a guy with what's called sometimes called the clipboard, um, and he is the guy that has all the drafts and the players report to him. Yeah, and the other real specific thing we did different than some of the events I've been to is the guy with the clipboard was actually just at a station in one place. He wasn't walking the floor. Uh, if he's walking the floor with the turnover where you have someone replacing someone so they can go to the break or so they can just go to the bathroom, the players can't find the same guy every time. If they at least know that they're going to the same spot every time, they really don't care who's at the table as long as it's a person who can take their results. They probably won't even notice that it's a different person. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> yeah, just guy, guy in a black shirt. Yep. Oh, black, no, yeah. <laughs> the, the other thing that this does, it also allows you to rotate judges through this stationary position so they can get off their feet. I mean, that's 
one of the things I try to focus on whenever I'm in charge of an event is making sure that the people are taken care of, both the players and the judges. You know, if you're not having fun, it's not a, it, you know, we say it a lot of times, but I don't think everyone always really knows what that means. You know, I want you not to be exhausted. And so if you can sit down for, you know, a half hour, you're probably going to be pretty rested for the next thing that you need to do. So were there any unique challenges or situations that arose during Saturday? Well, other like than I just said, massive size. Uh, the, the size was pretty, pretty impressive. Um, the, the layout that we ended up creating because of adding the tables created uh, an, a, kind of a blockage in being able to get to where we were actually firing the public events. They were farther away from the stage than what you genuinely, generally would like. Because you had to have players, you know, judges running back and forth. The there was just the sheer number of people, uh, the staffing for the side events. You know, it was a little light, but there was everyone was a little light. Uh, some of the other issues was just the layout of how you would want to do things. With like I said, with the guy who's collecting the results, typically you want them, the players, not to have to cross in front of the stage in order to get, give the results or collect lands. That way you don't end up with what we ended up at times with just a giant sea of people in front of the stage. I told, I asked at least three or four judges, different judges at different times to just to find out what people were waiting for. You know, why are there 12 people here? Are they, you know, and one of the things that I kind of lost sight of at one point was that one of the pairings boards was just off uh, stage right. And so sometimes people were gathering for the main event and I'd lost track that the round was about to fire for the main event. (laughs) It's like, why are all these people here? (laughs) Oh, wait, (laughs) that's a pairings board. Nice. Yeah. So some of the so, some of the judges got some good laughs at me for that one. <laughs> so so let me ask ask this: Do you think because there there is a stigma, I'll say, with some judges that side events are less sexy, less glamorous than the main event? Like they'll 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 show up, they'll get their the the staff list or the the schedule, and they'll be like, "Oh man, I'm working sides." Yeah, I, no. I definitely think that that's the case. And it's really unfortunate because I think some of the more challenging things that I've ever experienced have been on you know, the side events. You know, how do you deal with you know, uh, something as simple as just firing eight-mans? It sounds super easy because you do it you know, in the store. You fire an eight-man draft, and it's no big deal. But when you're firing eight-man draft after eight-man draft, and you're still trying to manage – all the people that are coming up to you, manage putting them on tables to where you can keep using space. Because that's something that people lose sight of is you only have a finite amount of space to kind of Tetris these people into. And so if you're not using it properly, you can completely waste all of your side event state space or make it terrible as a floor judge to try to cover because you've spread out all these drafts instead of kind of condensing them. And it takes a really you know motivated person, I think, to handle getting all the drafts fired when they're firing at a rapid pace. And every time a round would end or get close to ending, we would get a surge of people signing up. And so we'd fire three or four drafts, you know, in a matter of 10, 15 minutes, which sounds like a little bit of time. But when you really have all those people showing up, it, it, it can put some pressure on you. Every time I've been on public events, I've, I've lost my voice yeah, just, just from announcing and starting. And it's a lot of, it's a lot of work. It, it, it's quite a bit of work. And you, you have to, depending on where you are in the ro- what role you're taking, you know, if you're just firing the eight mans, you know, you're walking back and forth across the venue to fire events. You're trying to explain to people, um, you know, how to do a draft. And that's the thing that a lot of the people like uh, Brian is before, you know, there's a lot of people. So there's people who haven't, you know, done a lot of drafts. You know, this is a big, you know, it's a big, big tournament. Deal. It's a big show. It's a big deal to draft. 
And so you have people of all different drafting styles. And I think it's very easy to get yourself caught in a trap where you just assume they know what they're doing and you end up with a botched draft mm-hmm. because you didn't take the time to explain it because you didn't give it, you know, the respect, I guess, is the way that's what I can come up with. You know, it's still people who want to be at the tournament. Right. And to people, I've, I've heard comments where it's like, oh, well, side events aren't real judging. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you that, yeah, it is, uh, well, because judging isn't just answering the calls. And if you're on the main event on day two, it's pretty boring uh, from from the, from the standpoint of calls on the floor, because those guys are normally guys that, you know, know what know what's going on. So you might not get a lot of calls, but on the public well, events, talking, even if you're talking about the staffing, uh, before, you're talking about 12 to 16 judges for less than 200 players. I mean, even if there are calls, you probably aren't getting too many of them. Right. Right. So, you know, judging isn't just answering a rules question. It's also, you know, it's, and we say it, it's also p- pushing in chairs, picking up trash. And there was a lot of chairs and a lot of trash. Um, it's making sure that players are having a good time and uh, 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 helping people out and customer service and making sure that the players are smiling and laughing and getting value for their money. Um, well, it's, it's also easy to just lose track of people. I mean, there's a lot of people who are there. Like, I think, I don't remember what the number was, but I know there was a number of people who showed up at uh, Charlotte who just played in, played in the side events. That was their whole weekend. So I can give you, I can give you some, some numbers. I got these from, from Jared today. More than 250 players attended and played in an event without participating in the GP. So they just, 250 players, a large PTQ just came to play side events. But not actually a large PTQ, just the amount of people that would normally be at a large right, PTQ. Right. The, the amount of people who would normally be at a large PTQ just showed up just to play sides. That is crazy. They they had, uh, for eight-player events, they had over 150 win-a-box events, over 250 drafts. Jeez. As I, I just did some math, and the uh, if every one of those 250 players solely did one draft, that's already 31 drafts, which is insane. <laughs> and that's just people who just showed up just to do public events, not even people from the GP, the O2 they drops. Had, they had, in the side events, they had more than 2,100 different players. So... 2100 different players minus the minus the 250 minus the 250 players that were new is was at 1850 so 1850 players from the main event played in at least one side event so what is that what is that about two thirds it's a lot yeah it's so nuts. so in the, and if that i mean that right there should should show you how much side events matter when it, it's it's where a vast majority of people end up Playing. And you're like, oh, well, firing a draft, that's easy. It's like, yeah, well, firing a draft might be easy. But five drafts in half an hour isn't. And then um, and managing the space and, you know, still interacting with the players and stuff like that. It's not easy. So, so Matt, did you have any concerns about uh, running out of product, running out of lands, anything like that? Uh, there was a – SCG had done a good job. There was a bunch of lands. So we were constantly – uh, managing the land station that was part of the judge who was re- receiving the results of his job uh-huh. was to keep sorting lands cool. you know they were keeping busy and still produ- helping on the floor uh we one of my first tasks for the day uh, so before i get hard ahead of myself i basically started working the public events at noon even though i was supposed to start at 11 because we weren't actually firing we'd only fired a couple of 
small events. Uh, and so one of my first tasks that the uh, admin staff had asked me to do was get a count on product, find out how much we could actually fire and how much they needed to bring in for, for Sunday because they knew they were going to need more. Where would they get it from? Uh, they actually brought it in from their store. I think I believe they emptied out most of what Star City had on hand. There's the store in Roanoke? Yes. Wow. They, they, they drove it in. <laughs> wow. That's insane. Yeah. They, they uh, you know, also judges were asked uh, to, d- to defer getting some of their boxes until later. Right. I mean, they were doing everything they could in order to try to make sure that they could fire as many Which, events as they wanted to, to have. To be, to be fair about the, the, the deferral thing, it was, you know, not not all that bad because it's like, hey, here's two or three boxes that you don't have to put carry on the plane with yeah. you. You know, like if you're not going oh, to sell yeah, it, no, if you're I'm going not, to take it home. We're going yeah, we'll to ship it to you. I'm not poorly of it. No, no, no. <laughs> it was great for me. I didn't want to carry that stuff on my on the plane. No, and uh, <laughs> yeah, so it, it worked it worked out very well for for those of us that uh, uh, we're just going to take it home and spread it all out on the floor and roll around on it. Sure. Yes. Hey, Scrooge. <laughs> just make big old piles of it and just dive in it and swim through the packs like uh, like Scrooge and his money when he vault. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so to roughly account for it, we had about 96 seats that we could put players in at the start of the day, which sounds like a good amount of space. <laughs> But it shrinks rather quickly. Yeah, I can imagine. When you're firing almost five drafts an hour. Yeah, and then you have like awkward commander pods, which you always have to just kind of squeeze in places. Right. And... Um, the one thing that they, the, the quick adjustment that was made is the delay of the scheduled events. Uh, they were originally, I don't remember the original schedule, but I know it was like noon, two, four, six, I believe is what they were. Mm-hmm. And they ended up being squished down to just three, four, five, six. <laughs> Yeah. So we delayed the first one a couple hours. Usually they're scheduled to coincide with like round two, you know, so right. the O2 drop right. can come right. in. And so we had, and I'm just going to have to rough the numbers. I don't have the cheat sheet I had at, exactly. at the event. That's all Judge Cast uh, does was, is rough the numbers. It was about 10 teams uh, for the first, uh, for the two-headed giant event that fired first. Uh, so as we were talking earlier about just managing the people, I think one of the important things you have to do is Find someone who can handle whatever the event is that's a scheduled start and be able to trust that they can make sure each round fires, make sure that each round ends and handle anything else in between. Uh, and then they can still rely on you if they have other issues that come up. You know, if they have an appeal and the guy just doesn't want to listen uh, to whoever the floor judge is or the head judge for these events, sometimes just having that other person is good for them. Uh, so one of my first things I did was I asked Turner for someone who could handle a two-headed giant event if he had anyone on his team. And so he found me a guy who fires two-headed giant drafts in his local store drafts? every week. Yes. Wow. <laughs> yes. So uh, we had a guy who um, trained on two-headed giant. We had another guy who did drafts every week for two-headed giant. And we put, had them take care of the two-headed giant to get started. Uh, so that was good because there's usually a lot of questions during build period for two-headed giant for those who don't have to deal with that very often. There's a lot of cards that do what you want and plenty that don't do what you want them to do. <laughs> Battalion does what you want. Right. Battalion does amazing things and... Uh, extort. Uh, extort, yes. yeah. Extort is the one that does amazing things as well. Yes. Yeah. So those are the questions you end up with. So you typically need more people just to, for the build portion for Two-Headed Giant than you do for the actual play. Because by the time they're playing, usually they've either figured it out or the calls are pretty simple. You just answer the question and move on. And you don't have to... You know, you can still be friendly, 
But when they're still building, it's a little bit different. I don't know. Just right. they, They're a little bit more chummy and want to talk. When they're playing, they're like, no, I'm just playing. <laughs> <laughs> We're here for some serious two-headed giant. <laughs> yeah. And then we had, uh, I want to say it was, my math is right, it should be 60 players for the standard event that fired shortly thereafter. Once again, you know, uh, I put uh, Adam, Adam White, Taz, took care of that for me. And then I had was a sealed there, event. I'm sorry? Was there, at some point, there was a line. I'm trying to remember what day that was but the line was you know like a hundred people deep was oh that... oh that was saturday that was <laughs> right <laughs> um so the next i'll get i'll get to that in just one second we had a sealed event that fired with another i want to say 30 or 40 people in that and i may have flipped the standard and sealed numbers and then we had a legacy event that had another 40 or 50 players in it and so you just picked player picked judges who were comfortable and excited to handle those events. You know, so I ended up with four guys who took care of that real well. Um, Wes, Taz, John Paul, and JD. Uh, those guys each had judged their events, made sure they fired each round and took care of business without really much interaction from me beyond just checking to make sure they were doing okay. Uh, and then because the hall was closing and we had, a, I believe, we needed to be out by midnight with a hard time of 1 a.m. The good folks at Star City had decided to cap the line at 8.30, finish letting whoever registered get into an event, and try to fire them as fast as possible. Uh, so when they made that announcement, the line from the public event stage, I mean, we had a pretty big event hall, uh, had went all the way past, all the way to about the middle of where they had set up the Artists. section for like the, the featured events, because they bring in the two giant risers to set them on either side of the public of the featured matches, so you can kind of walk up and look down at the matches. And so that was actually past where some of the artists were. So to make sure I understand this right, <laughs> you, you guys made like a last call, you know, like a, everyone who lines up now yes. is going to get to do a, a, a public event. And that Correct. generated just a gigantic line of people. There was already. What did you do? Did you give like the last guy a sign that said, it's, this is it? I'm, I'm yeah, the last that's a good one. point. Like, no, we just, uh, one of the judges got to be the last guy to turn people away at that oh, point. Wow. Uh, so you put, you pick a vocal person who can, you know, I put a, I think it was Casey, got that job, Casey Brefka, who's a little bit of a, you know, rugged looking guy. Got him to stand <laughs> at the end of the line and kind of scare people away at that point. That's yeah. Your job is to stand in the public events line for as long as it takes and then not play a public event. <laughs> I, <laughs> I had at a, a, a similar job at, uh, Madrid to stand at the back of the line for the artists because it was like the ar- the artists want to go home. Yes, I was also I'm also ugly. <laughs> I mean rough. So yeah, so my my job was to yeah standing sitting at the end of the line is a thankless job because because yeah. everyone that comes up everyone that comes up is going to be disappointed and then you get those guys that are just like come on what's one more come on or the guys right. that try and sneak in line and you gotta no I mean they didn't even try to bribe you <laughs> uh no I'll try no. No, I got, I got a lot of what's the big deal, what's the bi-, you know that kind of thing. But and on Sunday, because of the large size, the the big side event that they had on Sunday was a 5K. Because of the <laughs> massive turnout, they bumped it up to a 10K. Yeah. So well, we had what's that? One of the other things that happened was because of the number of players, both in the main event and who played in the eight main events on uh, Friday and Saturday, they actually were going to do Gold Rush for all of the. Uh, scheduled events, and they just they had to stop because they didn't have enough brought, enough gold rush packets. 
So that's also one of the I think one of the driving factors in upping the the ten the five K to a ten K. And they did now one of the other things that they did that was super awesome. So mad props to Star City for this to keep people because we got such a late start. They did the cuts really weird or not necessarily really weird. We played was it nine rounds of Swiss? Uh, it was nine rounds of Swiss on Saturday. Saturday, and then so there was a cut. Okay, after those nine rounds. And then everybody came back in on uh, on day two who made the cut. They played one more round with those uh, sealed decks, and there was another cut. That sounds horrific. But well, the purpose. Well, the, the, the purpose, problem. Oh, sorry. Go on, Matt. Uh, so the problem is normally you want everyone to keep their sealed deck and just play with that on Saturday, and then just cut and be done with it. Whether you've you know done the actual official day two cut and then just have everyone play the first round of day two at the end of the day. And then just come home, go home, and then come back in the morning and just draft. But the problem was by not starting the GP until 12, I don't know what the exact start time was, mm-hmm. you ended up not being able to fit in all of the rounds because of the venue closing. Right. So what they did that was really good was everyone who got the cut after round nine, so Kate showed up, played their one round, round 10, and got cut after that, got free entry into the 10K. Oh, that makes it significantly less bad. Yeah, and I haven't heard about that yet, nice. actually. Yeah. So, yeah. And there were even a few people who didn't want to, didn't have standard decks with them or didn't want to play in that event. Um, they would also gave them the opportunity to, I mean, it's not the same as playing in the 10K, but they were also given the opportunity to play in a, a side event for free. That's nice. In a lot of ways, this is only an event that Star City could have done. Okay, and in a lot of ways, it's an event that only Star City could have created, too. You know, they generated the hype, you know, and they got a a lot more expected turnout, but they were able to handle it, you know, both having the extra product, being able being able to have the product, being able to, you know, have all the judges because of the judge conference that they were able to pull in because we recruited some judges on site to help out. And so, you know, being able to pull people in, raising the the event from a 5K to a 10K, giving people free entry into it who didn't make the cut. It was just a lot of things that they were that they were able to do. That, that uh, 10K, did you get the numbers on that? Wasn't it? Like <clears throat> it was 600, 660 plus yeah, or 660. minus two or three. Yeah. So like an Australian GP or a Canadian one. Or, or, yes. Yeah, so we ran, we ran that. I was on that event and we had, or Charleston. <laughs> yeah. We had, I think like 20 ish judges, maybe less. I think, I think we had somewhere between, somewhere between 15 and 20 judges to run uh, a small GP. So yeah. that was, that was fun. A lot of interesting calls. Mm-hmm. You also um, had to start the event without the microphone. That was that was another wow. Um, one because of the interest- the call drafts for the main event had started right around the time that the 10k was supposed to start, which is another one of the challenges of side events is that if you're at a limited GP, you're going to lose access to a microphone twice throughout the day without a doubt. Yeah, that's that's pretty awkward. Like it wasn't like cause there's some GPs I've seen. Well, they basically have two PA systems, one for that half of the room and then one for the other. They didn't have that set up. Well, the problem was, I mean, it could have probably been changed for Sunday and maybe it just wasn't an option with the venue. But at least for Saturday when they were doing stuff, you know, they, they had to have it set up for the whole room because they're, you know, the GP was from wall to wall to wall to wall. <laughs> I guess that makes sense. Yeah. So and, and that uh, 
uh, 10K you're talking about, I hear it ended pretty late. Yes. It, it took it, it home it, with them. It, <laughs> yeah, it ended It ended at, I think, 1.30. Yeah, in the lobby. In the lobby of the hotel. <laughs> yeah, you do what you got to do. Which, that's, that is something that judges, if, if you know that, you know, your event's going to run late, consider the closing time, the time that you have to be out of the venue, and probably around like 8 o'clock you need to start thinking about contingencies. Yeah. You know, you know that's funny. At uh, Great Britain, Nashville, they uh, they didn't apparently think about this contingency, and they actually sent the PTQ into sudden death in the final. Really? Uh, if I remember correctly. Uh, no, 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 not the most recent Nashville, but like two years ago. Nashville. Yeah, that was my first GP. Oh, yeah. was it? Were you on the Were you on the PTQ the second day? No. He's pleading the fifth. <laughs> no, I don't think I was. Wait, wait. So when, I, still level when one. I heard about it, I wasn't actually uh, on staff for the event. What I heard from other people uh, about the event was that they had to go into sudden death for the for the final. Yeah, I wouldn't know at uh, the time. I didn't know what. I was because doing. because they were actually just like kicking them out of the venue, like you have to go right now. Uh, I, but the you, problem you was that. Go ahead. Oh, so you haven't really judged until you've had to take an event home with you. <laughs> they, uh, yes. The problem was that it was scarce mirrored and sealed, and both of the players were were head drafted infect. Uh, so there, there, there was no change in life totals happening on either side of the board because every, all of their creatures oh, had infected. right, right. <laughs> and and no, nobody could make the other guy lose life. That's fine. That's pretty So awkward. I do want to – one thing that Jared, when he also sent me these numbers, he sent me one. Uh, it says special announcement for Judge Cast. Ooh. Whoa. Yes. Well, this is more for the judges who worked GP Charlotte, oh. but it is an announcement for us to make. Um, all judges who worked GP Charlotte will be receiving 10 extra StarCityGames.com judge reward points. They should be showing up on their accounts. Uh, they should already be there. So one of the things that Star City does is they give when you judge events for them, they give you points and you can turn those points into things. So you got 10 extra points. And just to give you an idea of what these what these points can do. So normally if you work an event, you get a point, uh, but you can turn 15 points into one year of premium. So if you work to this event and then you just have a few loose points laying around, you can get a get a, a, a free uh a free year premium. That's a that's a good deal. Isn't it like eight hundred points, and they'll fly you out to any? It's I think eighty like, points. Oh, 80. Which I believe 80. someone cracked that level by being yes. at GP Charlotte. They'll fly you out to any uh, yes. open. Is that right? Flight sponsorship to a StarCityGames.com event. Wow. Yeah, just don't tell them you plan on using that flight sponsorship if you're like in Florida and you're like, yeah, I plan on. Can I work Star City Seattle? Whatever, <laughs> no. yeah, or they might, you know, maybe they were like, "Oh, I don't know." We, oh, yeah, we you could use the flight sponsorship, but uh, but you didn't get approved for the event, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry there. <laughs> All right, so Matt, at the what? end of the day, how many judges did you have on public events? Do you know? Like, how many had you ended up uh, taking away? Uh, let me get the number. I know I bust out the handy dandy notebook. Ooh, the notebook. I never saw that movie. You guys seen it? It's supposed to make you cry. <laughs> That was actually a Blue's Clues thing, I think. To make you cry. Uh, I believe I, I started with just scheduled judges somewhere around 10. We had one scheduling mix-up where I had a judge who was on staff. Scheduled on staff at both 11 and 3, but they called for uh, called out for whatever reason. And so they effectively double no-showed on me, <laughs> which is kind of fun. Uh, and then I took in all of Turner's staff, which is another six judges. So I think we ended up getting up to about... 16 or 17 judges. We had a couple of guys show up, you know, show up and come in early. Uh, one of them was, you know, Abe Corson was the night lead, and he uh, came in an hour early and just went to firing away eight mans and helping keep things going. One of the other things that we had dealt, had to deal with was just some cleanup, you know, with all the hectic craziness of the event. 
we end up with like this little kind of nook filled with product that was kind of prepped for the main event. Uh, so we had to turn that into a product that we could use. You know, it's just all in all, the staff that was working at the side events on Saturday for uh, Charlotte were very flexible. They were just really willing to go and do whatever uh, was needed and really just, it was awesome. You know, there were a few things that, you know, I'd have liked to have done better. And I don't know if we want to talk about my shortcomings or not. I guess that's up to you. That's it could fine. be a learning experience for other people. Yeah, we, I guess we can do that. Um, I was talking about this earlier with Brian. And, you know, sometimes you get caught in just the the chaos that's going on and you lose sight of some of the other things that you can do better. You know, and it's just sometimes you just got to take the step back and really analyze what's going on around you and just take that deep breath that you don't think you have time to do, but you just need to do. Sending people off to do tasks that don't necessarily need to be done in that particular time period can be a problem. Mm-hmm. And so I caught myself a couple of times uh, and some of the guys would just call me out and they'd be like, hey, are you sure you want me to do this? And I'm like, uh, no, I don't want you to do that task. Let's do something else instead. Uh, there's a better way to doing this. Um, that was definitely one of them. We didn't, like I said earlier, we didn't have a kind of gathering place, which was kind of a hiccup uh, just because of having people like crowd the stage. Right. Uh, and the other thing is, it just I wish I would have had a little, little made the time to actually have more like team atmosphere with all the judges. You know, I tried to do my best to talk to everybody and check in on them, make sure they were getting water, make sure they were getting breaks, but everyone was kind of scattered, which was kind of a product of the situation. Yeah, that, that's really tough to do. I, I don't, you know, I would. But it's still, it, you don't want to feel like you're out on an island. Like, I think that's sometimes what's happened to people and maybe given them the bad taste is that I got stuck firing eight mans. That's all I did. And I was all by myself and no one cared about me. And so being able to switch think, them off on the different tasks is important. And then just make sure you feel like a team. I think that's why people are afraid of side events is because that happens so frequently. And then it, somebody gets on side events and then they get, they, or they feel like they get forgotten about. Right. Uh, and, and so that's like, they don't want that to happen, but it can actually be a lot of fun if your team's actually working together, like you're talking about. I, and I think sometimes people are afraid to, to stand up and say, Hey, you know, you forgot about me. You know? Right. You, you get a number of people who are on side events because that's kind of where your level one judges end up. They just don't know any better. And people don't take that time to let them know what to expect. They, they don't have – they don't know what they're getting themselves into and they don't know that it's okay to say, hey, is this how this is supposed to go? Right. And so I had a couple of judges who it was their first you know, GP experience and I tried to make sure that I took you know, an extra you know, three, four minutes just to talk to them about if you're, you know, if you're tired – let them know. Let me know if you need to go. You know, go do something. Let me know if you're not having fun. Let me know. Just reminding people that they can come talk to you is important. One of the other things that kind of goes ties in with this is I didn't get off the stage as much as I wanted to. A lot of people, when they're in a leadership role, you know, either head judging event or in charge of something like sides, they find themselves kind of tied to the stage, and it's a terrible place to be. Like it's good to be there for a little bit to kind of see, use the elevation to see what's going on. But everyone you're working with is out on the floor. And so that's where you also need to be, you know, is out helping people, you know, making sure that they're okay. Like you said, people get left out off on an eight-man event by themselves and don't realize. So long long as people can find you. I mean, that's that's actually – that's the the big thing. The big advantage of being on the stage is everybody knows where you are. But if you can get out and still be visible and have people know where you are, then get out there. You know, talk to players, talk to judges. Yeah, it's 100 percent true. I mean, you definitely do have to be visible because the scorekeepers are definitely going to look for you 
uh, especially if you've introduced yourself as you know the lead or you've been told to them as being the lead because they know that you're the person who's supposed to fix their problems because just like players are at the sometimes at their first GP and they're not really sure and they can screw up a draft uh, you know a judge can also screw up a draft by you know seating people in a weird order you know deciding to just randomize the seating themselves even though the system has it a certain way or the head judges aren't giving the scorekeepers the things that they need you know a lot of scorekeepers want to know you know what time the rounds end that way they can have an idea and get into a flow as well with the events so those are you know those are a couple of things that I want to do differently next time is you know be more involved on the floor interact more as a team and really home in on making sure people feel like they're a part of a team and not just out on an island by themselves. And I think that rotating people through also helps. And sometimes people just want to feel accountable. That's the other thing, is especially if you have a newer L1 or a new L2 is at their first GP, you can really improve their day by giving them the responsibility of being a head judge for an event. You know, it's, yeah, they've gotten to do them at their, the local store, but, you know, I'm in charge of this event with, you know, 80 people in it. I've never done this before. And you can give people a chance to rise up and really show that they you know, can handle the challenge. So one, one other one one thing that we wanted to stress in this conversation is when you're judging or, or, or if you get put on side events, it's it can be a challenge, you know, like anything. It is what you make of it. If you want to be if you want to be the guy that just kind of sits there and doesn't do anything, you know, obviously we're going to we're going to try and pull you in and try and, and make you engage engage you. But, you know, if you do, if that's your goal or you're you're sulking and you want to you want to just kind of sit over there you're not going to get the most you're not going to get the most out of the event uh it can be challenging it can be difficult it can be real you know real judging well some some of my toughest calls have been on regular events because you don't have the standard ipg fixes right and players are just looking to have have a good time and here's here's something else that's, that's interesting about gps that i've i've learned is the main event and this is kind of the main event kind of pays for the main event. Okay. And what I mean by that is the GP itself is typically the, the thing that, you know, pays for the hall, pays for the staff, pays for all that. Okay. And it's, it's the side events where, you know, I'll say the TO makes money. Okay. And if P, if the TO isn't going to make money, then, you, you know, obviously, I mean, we live in a capital, uh, a capitalist society. It's not like people, it's like, Ooh, I can't wait to do that GP and lose money. <laughs> um, like the prestige so, of it. Yeah. I want to be the guy that lost the most money on side of it. You know, so, so you, you are there doing a job. You are helping, you are helping the, the, the tournament organizer make money so that he can come back and make the next GP something super awesome also. So they are important. It is important to make sure that players are having a good time. It is important to make sure that the line, lines are, are, are manageable. It's important to make sure that you're able to find the, the eighth player that wandered off to Mojangles and is chomping on some chicken so that you can fire or, or, you know, when you can't find him, just cut your losses and grab the next guy and pull him in. That was one of the adjustments that was definitely made on Saturday was once we realized the pace of the drafts, you become a lot more willing to just sub in the guy from the next draft because you're not worried about the guy having to wait a half hour to 45 minutes to be in the next draft. The next draft is five minutes away. So there was, there was a talk on, on, 
on Friday night, uh, Chris Richter was was bringing this up that some TOs have have had some success or are thinking about getting those like those little restaurant buzzers. Um, yeah, I like that idea. To be, and it was like, well, what happens if the players don't don't return them? And he was like, well, you see, it's you know, to re- the replacement costs to one of those buzzers is about fifteen dollars. So if they don't show back up for their draft. You've still got your money, which essentially paid for the buzzer that they wandered off with. Well, what happens when they lose the buzzer and still show up for the draft? Oh, they ain't oh. getting that money back. But yeah, but do, do we let them play? Like, that's awkward. Maybe, sure. Whatever the deal, you know, goes call. If they if they can't turn in the bu- if they can't return the buzzer, then you know, just like I'm not trying to be like like a jerk saying that. Like, you, know, you just I rained just on this parade. Curious. I would say that you have to pay to replace the button. If you lose it, you got to pay to replace it. To me, that makes sense. How are you going to lose that thing? Well, what if the guy comes up and it's somebody else? Like, I take uh, B-Pro's buzzer and show up. Yeah, what if? What's the problem? <laughs> I mean, how is that any different than me walking up and going, you just called Joe so-and-so, I'm Joe yeah, so-and-so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, like, that, that could happen, yeah, too. That could easily happen. We're going to sit down. We're going we're gonna to figure this out. But one of the cool things that I like about it is you get those buzzers that when you wander too far away from the station, they start beeping, yeah. which would be kind of awesome because I can just imagine I can just imagine the venue across the street, or, you know, the food court or whatever. Just, and everyone's beeping. <laughs> everyone's beeping. Yeah. yeah, that's the other problem is like you have this thing. People go, oh, I was down the street at the subway and I didn't see it buzz, right? Like, Well, I think when you walk in, if it's – I mean – it's an idea. It can be. No, it's a good idea. I just like. But, I mean, I, I, beeping and buzzing. You're gonna notice that. It's true. Before you even get. I mean, especially if it's set up to like when it gets out of signal to just go into auto annoy mode. But <laughs> I like that. I like that idea a lot. It's a great you know, idea. Yeah, I like the idea. The only other thing I'll say is, do you know how much stuff gets lost over the course of the GP? Good grief. Oh. We'd probably end up we'd probably be going through the backpacks and the lost and found in order to find the buzzers. <laughs> so, so many things got turned into lost and found. Wait, I want to talk about one last thing about this GP. I heard you guys had like right. a super paper cutter. Oh, this thing Tell was awesome. This paper a laser. Cutter. Okay. I want to know about this. <laughs> and and we've entered Judgeville only. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Judge Cats. It's always a paper. It's a paper cutter. And Aldifer says this isn't even the good one because apparently there's one with like a big hand crank. All right. So this paper cutter has a laser sight on it, like attached to the blade. So it shines a nice little red light and it could cut three quarters of an inch, uh, like a like a stack of papers, three quarters of an inch. So when you're running off like a lot of slips, you know, one of the worst things you can do or one of the most obnoxious things for the paper team is having to divide like 100 pages up into like 10 pages at a time and then re you know if you've got it set up to print for a cutting machine you kind of have to reassemble all those little stacks to go hand out the slips mm-hmm. but this thing you just slid it under there and then it just had this big guillotine lever that you just slid down and it just made this real satisfying thunk sound <laughs> i heard it could do like half a ream of paper or something insane but it could do an amazing sheet had problems doing a single sheet <laughs> that's like, funny <laughs> Because the cut I got uh, from the scorekeeper, they were like, here's some, here's four slips that we had to reprint. Go ahead and get them out. So I just grabbed it off, went over to the paper cutter, and took this big, giant guillotine lever and slid it down. And I got my satisfying thunk. And when I lifted it back up, the paper was just kind of bent. I, <laughs> I just kind of looked at it, knocked my head to the side for a second. I was like, huh, must be a fluke. So I tried it again. And I heard it, I heard so- it had like a red laser light. It did. Man. I've heard um, a lot about this paper cutter. This, this laser, the laser light was 
well, when we first got it, it didn't have batteries. So the little red laser light didn't work. And we we're kind of, you know, looking in this little dark hole or dark slot and we can't really tell where the paper's lining up. And then Ryan Stapleton went and got batteries from somewhere mm. and loaded it in and we Probably hit the button. one of his Legos. <laughs> he just had one in his Legos. Form <laughs> robot Legos. And so, and then we hit the button and the little red light comes on and we we're all just kind of like staring around looking at it. We're like, oh, I want to try it next. <laughs> we all got, paper team got all excited. Okay. And the final thing about it is I hear it's part of the GP kit. It okay. Is. So other judges out there, look for this thing. And don't steal and don't it. Steal it. Alderfer says that it's not the cool one. There's one apparently with like some sort of wheel and a hand crank what? that seems awesome. So that one probably went to uh, Quebec City then on us. He, yeah, the you know Canada. <laughs> they, they, you know, <laughs> steampunk whatever paper cutter. <laughs> hey, is everybody ready to jump into our emails? Yes. yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right, Matt. Sounds good. You said before the show that you didn't listen, which is kind of a jerk thing to do. But Sorry. we're listening to you right now. <laughs> but on this show, when we have guests, we have them say mail time in a loud, obnoxious voice before we go into the mail. Or I just made all this up because you said you didn't listen. One of those two is true, but you're still going to do it. <laughs> and my name's silly, so I'll just go yeah. with it. Mail time. Fantastic. Love Our first it. mail comes from Christopher Meyer, and I love the questions this guy sent in. Uh, they're both about Lazav Demir Mastermind, who is basically a clone with hexproof, and he keeps his own name and some other crap, but the rest of it doesn't really matter. Sneaky fellow. And he keeps hexproof. So, Ashley controls a Lazav Demir Mastermind that is copying an Olivia Valdarin. So, the relevant part about Olivia Valdarin here is she has an ability, a three black black gain control target vampire for as long as you control Olivia Valdarin. So, Natasha controls a glaring spotlight, which is solely there to get around the hexproof that Lazav has. And the aforementioned Olivia Valdarin. Okay, so Ashley has Lazav copying Olivia. Natasha has Olivia. Natasha, Natasha actually activates Olivia's second ability targeting Lazav. In response, Ashley activates Lazav's same same ability targeting Olivia. How does this end up? And the second ability is the one that, that says to take yes. control of the creature for as long as you control Olivia, Yes, right? for as long okay. as you control Olivia. So who, who's going to take this one? You tell me. Okay, I'll do it then. Um, so, <laughs> so you have... Uh, Olivia, I just want to make sure I'm understanding the question correctly. Olivia's ability is activated, and in response, Lazav's same ability correct. is activated. Is that correct? correct? Okay. So Lazav's ability will resolve to take control of Olivia. So the Lazav player will control Olivia and Lazav at that point when it, when it resolves. And then the uh, original Olivia ability, it will resolve, but... The duration has already ended, so nothing will happen. So Lazav doesn't move and then immediately come back or anything like that? Nope. Fantastic. So that's also true for, for things like triggered abilities and such where, in fact, for anything where it says for as long as X is true, if X isn't true by the time it resolves, like it stops being true beforehand, then you just don't do it. Right. All right. Okay. I'll take the next one. Do you want me to read it? Okay. Sure. Ashley. So just answer it. Let the let the players or let the, let the listeners guess what the question is. Uh, this one's this Who's one's a good one. This one's um interesting. Ashley controls a Lazav Demir mastermind that is copying a Deathrite shaman. I'm sorry, it's funny to me because Billy Willie just commented that he didn't know there was a IM box where we've been messaging to him this whole show. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Ashley controls a Lazav Demir mastermind that is copying a Deathrite shaman. Uh, Deathrite shaman is the good old boy. Tap exile target land card from a graveyard. Add one man of any color. Basically, she can tap and exile things. That's a, that's what matters. Ashley has over the four turned, 
over the turns, exiled four bear cubs, two lightning bolts, and three forests from her own graveyard. She then destroys Natasha's Bane Alley Broker and has Lazav become a copy of it. Okay, so Bane Alley Broker reads uh, tap, draw a card, then exile a card face down from your hand face down. You may look at cards exile with Bane Alley Broker and blue black tap, return a card exiled with Bane Alley Broker to its owner's hand. Okay, yeah. so the Demir, the Lazav, as a copy of Deathrite Shaman, exiled some cards, then turns into a Bane Alley Broker. The question is, can Lazav, as a Bane Alley Broker now, return those cards to hand that he exiled as the Deathrite Shaman? Okay, and the answer to this is no. What? Uh, so in Magic, uh, there are, I know, I know, but they were exiled with this permanent, so it counts, right? Okay, so there's these things called linked abilities, linked and abilities. basically linked abilities, uh, linked Billy Willies, um, Gross. and and so it's like Billy Willy if, links, if, like Billy <laughs> Willy. the rest of the episode. <laughs> Billy Willies. So now you got me all laughing, and I can't answer I'm the over question. Clint. So you, you'll have you'll have uh, you'll have one ability that actually references. Uh, another ability uh, in this particular case in, in Bane Alley Brokers, it's it's talking about uh, you're exiling cards and then you're returning those exiled cards back to their hand. So those are linked. So in in essence, uh, only the the return exiled cards with Bane, uh, with Bane Alley Broker to its owner's hands, it can only see cards exiled with its its the linked ability. So it's not like Oh well, now that I've changed it and I exiled these cards while it was some other permanent, now I've changed it into this other permanent and it can do cool things with the exiled cards. No, it's the the two don't intersect. So no, can't do it. <laughs> Linked abilities are one of those like I don't know, they don't come up often, right? Not really. It's generally they come up when people are trying to be overly clever with the like. It's like woohoo, I found a way to break the rules. Yeah. Exactly. And it's, it comes up and usually copy effects are, are involved. Right. Because you, you take something and it's like, you know, hey, when voice of all comes into play, choose a color and then it gains protection from the chosen mm -hmm. color. Well, now I'm going to change my my voice of all into a I'm having a hard time. There's there's an elf that when it comes into play, you Quirion choose a elf. color and then you can query an elves. It's like, yeah, so now I'm going to turn my voice of all into query and elves and because I chose black, when Voice of All comes into play, my Quirion Elf can now tap for black, no. right? No, no. So basically, it when it's linked abilities, no, it's not going to, if you turn it into something else, it's going to not work. All right. Our next mail comes from Andrew Brokaw. He says, hello, Judge Cast. I want to say that I really enjoy your podcast. I seem to learn something new every episode and greatly enjoy it. Uh, he did have a suggestion that we put contact info up on mtgjudgecast.com, which, yeah, we can do that if we figure out how. That's actually a really good idea. Yeah, it's actually always been in the show notes, but that doesn't make sense now that we have a website. He wants to know, how does protection work with damage prevention? So namely, uh, cards like Skullcrack, which Skullcrack deals three damage to target player and damage can't be prevented this turn. And then a card like Face Shield, which when you have Faithful Hour... Uh, if you have five or less life, you and each permanent you control gains protection from a chosen color until end of turn. So the example would be, say, I Skullcrack you, and you face shield in response to get protection from red. How does that interact? Billy Willie, you can take this one. Hold on one second. I'm still looking up the text on these cards. Skullcrack? Didn't you just see a ton of Skullcrack in Charlotte? He was up on the stage, man. Uh... They didn't... Yeah, I already admitted I failed by being on the stage too much. <laughs> no one appealed to anything about Skullcrack. Well, they should have. 
the Faithful Hour from the Faith Shield is going to say that you're supposed to have protection until the end of turn. Protection is a prevention effect. That's what he's looking for. He, yeah. he, he didn't. I don't think he understood that protection is a prevention effect. So when you have Skullcrack and you cast it targeting the player and it says damage can't be prevented, well, giving them protection from red in response doesn't do anything. What does what does protection do? Tell us. I'm sure we've said this a million times on this show. Yeah, you can't be damaged, enchanted, equipped, targeted. Uh, what's the one I'm missing? Blocked, but it doesn't apply in this situation. Blocked. Since yeah, we're, we're not. Player. Players aren't blocking. Yeah. <laughs> block. There's one that everybody always Fortified. misses. Fortified. That's that one. <laughs> <laughs> Look at us, Judge Tryhards. <laughs> There's one that everyone always misses. Not us, Tryhard judges. Fortify, fortify. Dark Steel. What is it? Dark Steel. Well, I went out of order in my the... head, so I was like, "Oops." It's a Dark Steel Garrison. Dark Steel Garrison. Fortify a land. Or... Yeah. Yep. So if you give the land protection from artifacts, or if you give it protection from something, and make the Dark Steel Garrison that something, then it can't be fortified by it. <laughs> That actually, that actually came up uh, today in IRC, and L0 was, uh, we were going over stuff, and we were talking about what protection was, and then he was like, oh, yeah. he was like, and fortify, and I was like, what, what? <laughs> and it was fortify his? Give him the L1 test right now. <laughs> this guy is a rules weenie. He knows what, he knows what time it is. All right, Brian, do you want to take this next yeah. one? From oh, the, 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 the one from yeah. Anonymous? All right, so this one is is really odd so we received an anonymous email uh, addressed to us that basically the, the summary is there was a player who was chronically depressed and as a way of dealing with his his depression began cheating at magic and became for lack of a better word addicted to the rush of cheating he's uh, according to the email he's uh, fortunately i've been able to beat my depression about a year and a half ago and after i beat my depression i started to work on and get rid of my bad habits i picked up since magic is was important to me i focused a lot on the cheating addiction and even though i still get the temptation from time to time i've been clean for about a full year now so his questions are is are now I want to tell the story. Uh, I'm telling the story because I would like to become a judge. Uh, magic is very important to me. I simply love it. I want to give back to the community. And third, I want to atone for my sins, so to speak. So his question is, how do we fe- how do we feel about this? Is it is it something that we think would be a problem? Do we think that there is an issue with a former cheater being a judge? That kind of stuff. So and I can give my opinion. OK, sure. I, I got I got no problem with it. He might even excel as a judge. You know, I don't know how to cheat. Right. So, so I I fired off to uh, Eric Shukan, who is the the head of the investigation committee, and I asked him just a few questions about relapse of chronic cheaters. Is there a history of cheaters turning good guy and becoming powerful anti cheating forces <laughs> and that kind of? Thing. And he's he's he has said that yes, there there are issues of of relapses uh, amongst amongst people who have been caught, but he says that there have been uh, people who have cheated in the past who have become judges, and they have become very good judges and very successful judges. To a degree, I, I kind of look at it as you know, just just like when when you catch a person cheating in an event, you know, you disqualify them and you say, you know, your time at this event is done and over with. You're welcome to come back next time, so long as the undesirable behavior is not mm-hmm. there. 
And so in that kind of respect, I kind of see it as the same way. It's it's you know, it's been a year. If if that undesirable behavior is gone, then sure, uh, you can you can be you can be a judge. I'm more concerned about, you know, do the players at your store, do they respect you or are you that shady, shifty guy? You know, that kind of that kind of vibe. You know, are you able to command respect from your players? That's that is that would be a concern and something that I'd want to look at and and try and address quickly if that's not. Yeah, the and that's case. definitely relevant. I, I was looking at more of a. I mean, this guy seems generally remorseful. He seems like he's turned around. So let's let's let him on in. But what what you're bringing up is completely relevant. He just may not be able to, you know, judge at the old store or something. So I would I would I want to chime in here on this. So he's he may have difficulty dealing with some players and or judges because of a reputation that he has already. Mm-hmm. But if he is actually no longer doing whatever uh, cheats he was doing before, then I see absolutely no reason that this person shouldn't not only become a judge, but be welcome in the judge community for, for his perspective and experience. Like, I, I just want to point out, like, it's absolutely not morally wrong for him to become a judge. The only problem would be if he was still cheating at magic, then it, then it would be an issue. I don't think it's in any way wrong. I just, like, I think that it, this would actually be a good thing for the, for, for the program and also probably for him as long as He's he's doing it for the right reasons. Like the I want to atone for my sins thing isn't exactly the right reason, uh, but it's also not a bad reason. Like if, he, if he's really involved because he loves the game and he wants to help the community, I think that's great. Yeah, and like the only downside I could see is like, well, let's say he wanted to become a judge so that he could learn how to cheat better, right? Let's see, I could see someone trying to do that. Well, this particular right. guy wouldn't say all the stuff he just said to us. There's no point. There's no point in saying you ever cheated. So he he was very con- very concerned. Uh, about like how how this would be how this would be perceived, and I'm kind of like if if you're comfortable sharing it with people, I think you know a year is definitely in my mind long enough uh, to to not be a, a a super huge issue. So if you if you're if you're comfortable telling you know finding a mentor or someone to work with, and you're comfortable telling them that, I don't think you should have to worry about them seeing negative seeing you negatively. One of the things from my point of view is I don't know that you have the information on what kind of cheats the person was addicted to. I mean, there's a big difference if he was, you know, stacking his opponent's decks and doing things that he was premeditated versus, you know, a simple, you know, not calling himself out for making you know, a mistake. You know, one of those opportunistic ones. I I didn't give my opponent f- complete derived information when he asked. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, in seriousness, there's enough number of times that you talk to a player and they say they cheated when really they did do they, either they didn't do anything wrong, but they think they did something wrong, or they just aren't quite sure of how it would go. He asked my creature what it did, and I left off the fact that it had trample. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I, I think we've hit. I think we've hit some good, good, good points. Good points all around. <laughs> no, please don't do that. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> All right, let's let's hop to our next episode, which is not nearly a series or episode. Uh, email from Brian Chaung from Minnesota. He says, "New listener here. I have been listening at work. Love the show. Keep up the good work." Uh, he just wanted to take a moment to chime in uh, on the host's reaction to the Raw Deal game. That's the the wrestling game. 
card game that for some reason this is the third episode we've talked about it i think uh, he says i'm a tabletop gamer and give any game a shot uh basically he says he doesn't really like wrestling but my friends did and got me to try raw deal mechanically it was a fun game and i'd recommend that if you get a chance since it's out of print to try it out all right Brian. no <laughs> yeah no is the quick answer <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for emailing. You know, I know judges that did play the game I, and, and they yeah. loved it. So I don't know. Maybe it's a great game. I, we'll I start just, all deal cast. Uh, I don't think. Yeah, I think it's just that I like. I'm so not into the theme that I don't know if I would enjoy a game, even if it was a good game. That was yeah, bad. exactly. Like people always talk about, like, um, because because Magic made that that parallel space, the gathering or joinering or something like that. Oh, that's actually uh, Wizards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm that. saying. Uh, Wizards made that as an April Fool's joke, and uh, I don't think I would play that. Right? I don't think I would have gotten into that game at the time that I got into Magic because it just seems it's different, even though it's all the exact same mechanics. No, like that's not. I don't think that was an April Fool's joke. Like somebody actually made that, and they got like a cease and desist letter. No, no, Wizards made that. That's that was on Wizards website. There was there they had an April Fool's joke. It was it was space, space the conflux or convergence or something like that. Yeah, it yeah, was they, like they had a whole week on it five six years uh-huh. ago. Oh well, maybe someone took that and made it a game because yes. like, I know I know someone that has like an entire cube made of those. Yeah, cards. somebody has taken that and tried to make it a full set. But I mean, I think if Magic was flavored that way, yeah, okay. This, it was like around future when Future Site came out, wasn't maybe it? Maybe I. It, it they were like, this could have been the future. All right, our next email is also from Andrew Brokaw. He says, "Hello again, Judge Cast." Hello. Hello. <laughs> this one is another of my brains versus my gut feeling on how it works. Alec has a bear cub in play. During his main phase, he casts Cackling Counterpart, which puts a target on the battlefield that's a copy of target creature you control, targeting the bear cub. His opponent, Nathan, responds, killing the bear cub with an ultimate price. What happens to Cackling Counterpart? He wants to know, is it countered? What are the haps here? Well, we have a spell that doesn't have a legal target. When do we check targets? He wants to know. Like, he's asking, uh, you know, is the target only checked when you cast the spell, so it's okay after that point? I'm going to say we check them twice. <laughs> when? Yes. So target target is a is is a magic word in magic and and any any abil- any spell or ability that uses the word target is checked both when on casting it and on resolution and it's got to be there both times. Now this is this is an interesting question actually. I, I've seen this question before with different clone effects, mm-hmm. mostly because there there was an article some time ago back in the days of Lorwyn and. Uh, that, that involved Shapeshare, which has two targets, if I remember correctly. And actually, I'm going to look that up right now so that I'm not, like, right, it's, totally it's target, wrong. Sh- target Shapeshifter becomes a copy of target creature, right. I think, is the, is the ability. So, so, so in the situation with that, and this is where a lot of these situations come from, because there is a way with Shapeshare specifically... Where if one, where if the thing you're targeting becomes an illegal target, you still get to copy it. Yeah. Because all of the, in order for a spell or ability to be countered, all of the targets have to become illegal. So this is a really, really weird exception to the rule. But in the case of Cacklin Counter Part, anything else with one target, if that target has become illegal, either because it's not there or it now gains protection or what have you, then you, you, it's just the spell is countered. It does not. All right. This next question. I might just have to answer, but it it's ridiculous. All right. I, I like I had to I think I learned something from this question. Oh yes, we're talking about commander cards. Oh. <laughs> That's Don't commander me, bro. Don't commander me. Where are we talking about commander cards, man? All right, suppose that I have Mr. Lazav the Mirror Mastermind, who is the, the feature of this episode, in play with two plus one plus one counters on him when the mimeoplasm is put into an opponent's graveyard. Let me read the mimeoplasm. 
hate the Mimeoplasm. As the Mimeoplasm enters the battlefield, you may exile two creature cards from graveyards. If you do, it enters the battlefield as a copy of one of those cards with a number of additional plus one plus one counters on it equal to the power of the other card. Hey, they're linked abilities. Are they? No, that's just one big ability. That's one big ability. Anyway. Since I cannot choose two creatures because Lazav is already on the battlefield, uh, he now has a 2-2 Lazav Demir Masterbrine, right? So it's copying the Mimeoplasm's base statistics because it's 0-0. Zero, zero. All right. So, so far, so good. Demir Mastermind, it's just a Lazav 0-0 zero, zero with two plus one plus one counters on it. Now, naturally, it does have all the interest of the battlefield text of the Mimeoplasm. So his question is, is if he casts Stolen Identity, which is the uh, newer card, put a token on the battlefield that's a copy of target artifact or creature, targeting Lazav. Lazav the Mimeoplasm. Yes. His new creature that's going to come in will it have the name of the creature that it copies as it comes in because it's going to have the mimeoplasms as it enters the battlefield ability or will it be named lazav demir mastermind because lazav maintains his name as a copy of something else right this one's this one's tough like i had a hard time with I'm this one to yeah it's it's very tough to say through words i had to read it like eight times so so we have we have a the token is trying to come into play as a copy of Lazavoplasm. Yes. Okay. And then, so it, you know, we apply that replacement effect. So it is now a Lazavoplasm. And now the Lazavoplasm has another enters the battlefield replacement effect, which is exile these cards and it becomes a copy of whatever uh, one of the things that you exile and the plus one plus one counters of the other thing. Yeah, I, sh- I should mention that the original Lazavoplasm has is still named Lazav because Lazav has the ability to retain his name when he becomes a copy of something else. And, th- and that's why part of this question is, uh, you know, what is the name of the thing as an interest? Continue, Brian. Okay, so we have we have a Lazavoplasm. Okay, it's trying to come in as a, Laz- a Lazavoplasm. But there's an ability on the Lazavoplasm that says exile these cards and it becomes a copy of that. Yeah. So we just exile those cards and it becomes a copy of the thing, complete with the thing's name and then the plus one plus one counters over to the other. So it works just like playing uh, the Mimeoplasm, which is kind of weird to say it's a the Mimeoplasm. Yeah, it's a the Mimeoplasm. Yes, as opposed to two the Mimeoplasms. Yes. So, and I'll try to describe this. So the part that was difficult for me about this was... um. Because I really had to think subject, about it. I was like, agreement. I was like, say you clone or you do like stolen identity on a bear cup. Are you bringing in a blank token that then has a copy effect applied to it? Or are you bringing in something that is a copy of a bear cup, right? That, that's what I was I was struggling with on this one. And the fact of the matter is when you make a copy, when you create a token that is a copy of something, the copyable characteristics of that token are whatever it is copying. So that thing that comes in is a 2-2 named Bear Cub. It doesn't have a copy effect on it. We don't have to worry about anything like that. So even though the Lazav that's being copied as a token has a copy effect on it, we're not copying that copy effect. We're just getting the... (laughs) Actual so I can true. I can clearly not choose the wine glass in front of me. Yes. <laughs> All right. Okay. Next question. Oh, this one's from Sergio. It's been a, you know, we, we were a little backed up on emails because we didn't um, talk about emails last week from, well, last episode from the Sheldon episode. But we've had some hardcore emails in here. I mean, linked abilities in this crazy copy thing. All right. Sergio says player A attacks with Geist of St. Trapped. Player N flashes in a Snapcaster Mage. And does not declare what he is responding to, you know, either the attack trigger or before 
uh, declare blockers, which is pretty much the same time. Player A asks what instant or sorcery he is targeting with flashback, then puts an angel into play. Player N says Azorius Charm and then indicates that Player A missed his angel trigger and that it's too late. So he says, from listening to the last podcast, I think that must have been the new IVG podcast. Uh, I remember someone saying that mandatory triggers are assumed to have happened unless someone something indicates that the player controlling the trigger forgot. What constitutes, constitutes indicating that something was forgotten? Does the lack of an angel on the field indicate that player A forgot? Uh, I can tackle this one yeah, go if for you it. want. Um, so the, the, this answer is going to be a little different depending on the rules enforcement level that we're at. Uh, yeah, this, uh, I mean, so this must be competitive. Uh, yeah, I'm assuming we're at a competitive rules enforcement level, like a PTQ or a Grand Prix. Mm-hmm. Uh, day one Grand Prix. So with this kind of trigger, which has a visual effect on the game state because it puts a token into play, right. the it's considered to have been missed when a player would pass priority after that trigger should have had a visual effect on the game state. So after the angel should be in play. So since it's since the player said nothing and the non-active player just cast a stack caster mage and targeted something, that all could have been done with the uh, guy's same draft trigger still on the stack, and the active player did not do anything to indicate that they've passed priority past that trigger. So this this is not a forgotten trigger, right? At, at all, right? And that, this would also be true at at regular. REL as well. The difference is going to be if it was missed, how you'd handle it at regular and competitive REL. So if it did, if we went a little bit farther and they had missed it, at competitive REL we're going to ask the opponent if they want to put it on the stack, and 99% of the time they're going to say no. Mm-hmm. And at regular REL we are going to just put it on the stack. Right. And and one other one other line from the mistrigger policy. It says, if an opponent requires information about the precise timing of a triggered ability or needs details about a game object that may be affected by the resolving trigger, that player may need to acknowledge that p- the ability's existence before the controller does. So the question of, well, I want to cast my Snapcaster Mage after he puts his Geist, after he misses his Geist of St. Traff token trigger. You really can't do that. Yeah, he's trying to gotcha his opponent here, but the policy is written where you cannot in this situation. Right. You have to ask. You have to be like, you know, you have to say, uh, you know, after your angel token responds or resolves or whatever. Right. Your, your advantage is being able to not point out your opponent's triggers, not being able to play word games and trick them into passing a point where they don't get their trigger. Okay. If they remember it, basically they got it. Uh, don't be cheatsies with, uh, or, or sneaky with word games and stuff like that. The policy is written to not allow that. Right. So if you think, if you think you should be able to do that, no, the policy says it is n- no, no policy. <laughs> no. says No the policy says no. All right. So this next question from Andrew, Andrew Hartzell. Uh, I'm going to read it, but I'm absolutely not going to answer or participate in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> when these cards are mentioned, I stop paying attention. <laughs> All right. If both Hive Mind and Knowledge Pool are in play, what happens when someone casts a Sorcerer Instant? doesn't matter who controls the Hive Mind or the Knowledge Pool. And let me read the cards, and then someone else can talk. Hive Mind. Whenever a player casts an instant or sorcery spell, each other player copies that spell. Each of those players may choose new targets for his or her copy. Knowledge Fool. 
Imprint. When Knowledge Pole enters the battlefield, each player exiles the top three cards of his or her library. When a player casts a spell from his or her hand, that player exiles it. If the player does, he or she may cast another non-land card exiled with Knowledge Pole without paying that card's mana cost. Okay, so I, I answered this. I actually w- tried to answer this while walking the dog. <laughs> um, With a yo-yo? And, uh, yes. Nice. No, the actual dog. And one of the irritating things was having to constantly toggle back and forth between what Hive Mind actually says and what Knowledge Pool actually says. Because <laughs> they seem to be cards that, that's like, hi, I want to annoy judges. Knowledge Pool Hive yeah, Mind. Miserable. Um, so the the question of of well, what happens when someone casts a sorcerer and sin? Does it matter who controls the the Hive Mind and the Knowledge Pool? Yeah, it does. It matters who controls the 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 Knowledge Pool and the Hive Mind and whose turn it is. So whenever we have so when we cast a spell, that's an, a random instant. Uh, both Hive Mind and Knowledge Pool, those are going to trigger. But the order that they go on the stack depends on whose turn it is. And who controls the the hive mind and the knowledge pool? Okay, so the active player's triggers are going to go on the stack first. Okay, so if he controls hive mind, hive mind trigger is going to go on the stack first, and his opponent controls knowledge pool. Then the non-active player's triggers are going to go on the stack. If both triggers are controlled by either the active player or the non-active player, they get to decide which order they go on the stack. So basically depending on who owns what and who the active player is one you know it's either going to be hive mind and then knowledge pool or knowledge pool and then hive mind okay, okay. With, me, with me so far no, I'm not and then yeah figured all right <laughs> so i'm going to say let's say to make things simple let's say i can i'm active player and i control both and i cast let's say a serum vision Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm going to choose at this point, since I control both, I get to choose the order. And I'm going to put, let's say I'm going to do the hive mind trigger on first, uh, then the knowledge pool trigger. All right. So with the knowledge pool trigger on the, st- on the stack top first, I'm going to resolve that one. So I'm going to exile the serum vision, get a new card out of the knowledge pool. Uh, let's say it's a lightning bolt. Hive mind's going to trigger again. So I'm going to cast that lightning bolt. Hive mind's going to trigger again. Okay. And my opponent is going so at that point the stack looks like hive mind trigger lightning bolt what is it uh hive mind trigger for the serum vision so then the hive mind trigger is going to resolve giving my opponents lightning bolts uh knowledge pool isn't going to trigger again because it only cares about spells cast from the hand and this is just putting a copy on the stack opponent's lightning bolt is going to resolve then my lightning bolt is going to resolve then the original hive mind trigger is going to resolve, giving my opponent a serum vision. His copy is going to resolve, and then I don't get my serum vision because it got exiled, and we're done. If I reverse the triggers, oh, no. <laughs> do we have to? So you said yeah. done, and I got hey, excited. So here's He's here's the thing. Still going. <laughs> I want to. I'm serious. Okay, first off, in my judging okay. career, I legitimately do not answer stupid hive mind questions because they're generally not rules questions; they're math questions or something like that. And secondly. <laughs> If anyone ever sends another hive mind or knowledge pool question, we will not read nope. it on air. Wow. That's not, necessarily, that's not necessarily true. It might be a particularly interesting question. Not with hive mind or knowledge pool. Wow. There are some interesting knowledge pool questions. For example, knowledge pool and curse of exhaustion and the interaction between 
Doesn't that one just let you not cast anything? Yes. Boom, done. Now we've covered that one. No one needs to email us about knowledge pool. I think um, there's no way. Actually, I gotta ask you guys a question. Does every judge have a card they hate answering questions about? Well, yeah, you just heard mine. <laughs> well, they do, and I do. It's mine is uh, Sylvan Library. Yo, That's yes. Uh, like people ask me about Sylvan Library, I'm like, is this happening right now in a game? No, I won't answer this question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Mine circle is uh, usually any commander only card. Usually <laughs> makes me unhappy. Yeah, it's, yeah. You got I, upset about the mimeoplasm. Yeah, I, I used to be that way, and then I have to run a commander league at my store, and so I answer a lot of those questions now. I hate Warp World. Not not because not because it's particularly hard, but whenever I'm playing in a game and someone flips over Warp World, the whole table just looks at me <laughs> and it's just like, figure this out, Brian. <laughs> And I'm like, yeah, we're, we're gonna go make some coffee. Uh, <laughs> you come back and tell us what happened, okay? <laughs> All right. So, do you really need to say the other, the reverse? Uh, well, I think I just read the email. I just replied. I was like, if you put the knowledge pool first, then the hive mind. It's pretty similar, except the opponent gets his serum vision before you fiddle with the knowledge pool. Okay, great. So, if anyone could actually follow that, good, good for you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I shouldn't. I we should never have read it. I'm sorry. I'm just sorry. <laughs> So if I have knowledge pool and half mine and I have the store, no, what happened? You know what's going to happen now? You've just basically set up all the listeners to start pulling us with ridiculous questions that don't yes. involve. Please do. I don't because, care. You can throw opalescence at me all you want. I don't care one bit. But when you put hive mind in there, or how about, how about opalescence and chains of Mephistopheles and? Um, Here's the other thing. I'm not reading Chains of Mephistopheles again. I read it once. I'm done. I've retired. It's like Lord of the Rings. You read it once and you're like, all right, I got it. I'm out. was one of those turned into Lost and Found. Lord of the Rings or Chains of Mephistopheles? Chains. <laughs> yes, yeah, so an entire DVD collection of Lord of the Rings was turned in at, at Lost and Found. I thought the book, maybe. I guess the book, awesome. <laughs> was it was it a gold rush card the chain oh that's daggers it, i don't know it just it came, oh, a security guard had it and turn it into uh <laughs> <Saban. laughs> the idea is like i got this card i got one of these stupid magical dungeons and dragons <laughs> cards take your it's got card. a it's it's got a goat thing holding the chain <laughs> <laughs> this boy ain't right <laughs> all right all right last email we're gonna end on a high note from Jeff Doty. Uh, he says, Hello, Judge Cast. No questions this time. Just wanted to say that after listening to the show for a while now and writing in once or twice, I finally coordinated with my store and local judges to get my level one test going. Because of what I learned from the show, somehow, I passed easily, only missing one question, and only then because I misread the REL for the scenario, which I thought was an odd statement since the REL is always regular REL on the level one exam. But maybe he didn't know that going in. Uh, thanks for providing the useful information week after week. It really helped me be prepared for the test. I'm excited to join the ranks of the level ones, and hopefully eventually level two will come as well. Awesome. Yeah. Congrats, That, was, that was one thing One thing about Charlotte, jump, jumping back, is I got a lot of uh, both judges and players coming up and saying, I've passed my level one because I listened to this show. I want to become a judge because I listened to this show. It was a lot of good, positive feedback. <laughs> And it wasn't just like judges that were at a conference or they saw my name badge or something like that. Like I'd be talking to a player and then someone be, hey, I recognize your voice. You sound like Kermit the Frog. I want to talk. <laughs> what? And People say you sound like Kermit apparently. the Frog. Um, so uh, uh, 
I want to thank you guys. Uh, stuff like that. You know, if you if you see Jess, if you see uh, CJ, if you see me at an event, if you see Billy Willie at an event. You'll know you me. Know, I'm the judge with glasses. Yes. The only judge with glasses. If you go up and say, like, hey, I've got a hive mind question. <laughs> and, like, you. he turns straight he slaps you. <laughs> then you know it's CJ. And his name badge says Roy. What? No, that's covered out with tape. Yeah, okay. That's why I said that me me and Billy Willie were uh, name tag brethren, because I have gone through a lot of trouble trying to get a name tag that just says CJ Schrader and not Roy Schrader or Roy CJ in parentheses Schrader. And so far, it hasn't materialized. And I know uh, Matt Williams over here has William Williams. I I got mine replaced, bro. Yeah, I got mine replaced (laughs) by Troll Turner. (laughs) I'm just waiting for one to show up in a kit that says Billy Willie. It's going (laughs) to happen. Okay, Um, so... If you listeners out there want to send us an email, you can email us at judgecast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash judgecast. And you can like us on Twitter at twitter.com slash judgecast. Also, visit our website at mcgjudgecast. Did you just say follow us on Facebook and like us on Twitter? I probably did. I'm tr- I was just trying to zoom Failed. through. Do, do both. Yeah, just do all those things. See, if you reverse, if you reverse the triggers, nope. then... <laughs> all right. You, you missed your Twitter trigger. So uh, because we're at Facebook, Ariel... You, uh, you, we, we didn't have to remind <laughs> no, you. No, let me we did anyway. <laughs> Matt, Instagram, Instagram, our Twitter feed to... Oh, we do need to get a JudgeCast Instagram. Foursquare, the Tumblr. Matt, thank you for being on. We appreciate the, the behind-the-scenes look. <laughs> you didn't know what to say. No, you're you're welcome. You didn't see that one coming. You're welcome. I don't... After all the anger I've just spouted. Uh, do you have any anything you want to plug? No. <laughs> good good because sheldon had like eight things so we'll just say he took oh, some of yours. I, mean, I, I guess I, I will say you know i really do appreciate the guys who helped work the side events for gp charlotte i mean we were put to the test i think they did a really good job so if i'm gonna plug anything it'll be those guys okay all right to all the listeners out there thank you so much for listening my name is cedar schrader i keep it fair i'm jess dunks i keep it fun i'm brian prilliman i keep it commander riffic <laughs> I don't answer them incorrectly. <laughs> well, CJ, oh, well, we, we can cut it out if you do. Yeah, yeah, we fix all of that, yo. Not all of it, unless unless it's unless it's yeah. Brian's mistake. Yeah, somehow all of my <laughs> mistakes get left in, but everybody else's get edited out. If I took out all your mistakes, we wouldn't have a show. Wow. <laughs> <laughs>